So now we come to our, 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 our time of teaching, and we're looking at Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. And if you have been with us for the past few weeks, we're looking at the gospel of Mark this summer. And today we're looking at the, a passage that, we're, that truly surprises the disciples. Uh, if you have been with us, you know the story of Peter, James, and John. You know the story of Levi. They've been following Jesus Jesus comes to them and says, hey, follow me. And these men leave their vocations and follow Jesus for the very uh, first time. But in the text that we see today, we actually see that they have misunderstood Jesus from the very beginning. They thought Jesus was simply a religious teacher, a miracle worker. And today they're, they're like, who is this guy? That is really the, the entire question of our text. And so as we think, so today, in other words, we're asking, who is this guy? But we're going to be taking our cues from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. So let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the, the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you be with us now, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, that we would see who Jesus is and, and what it means for us to follow Jesus in our everyday life. In Christ's name we pray, amen. The Chronicles of Narnia are a children book. It's actually, the Chronicles of Narnia is an entire series of books that are written for children. And the second book in this series is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And the story of, the, of that little book tells the story of how four children are transported into the magical land of Narnia. And in Narnia, there are mythical creatures. There are monitors, there are centaurs, and even talking animals. It is a magical world that is full of really magic. And so these children are fascinated in this world. But upon their arrival, they're learning more and more about this world. And they're learning how this world is actually cursed. It's under the, the curse and spell of the White Witch. The, the king of Narnia is one who, named Aslan. And Aslan is gone. They, they, no one knows where he is. There's only really rumors of Aslan. It, they find that this place is under the curse of the white witch, and this white witch will turn people into stone, into really lawn furniture like gnomes in her yard, and just on a whim. And so these children are, are actually like running and hiding from, from her, and they encounter two talking animals, two talking beavers, and this is the conversation that ensues. And it's a, really a conversation about this character, Aslan. And one of the young children named Lucy, she asks, is 
Aslan a man? And the, Mr. Beaver replies, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, another child. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I would feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. Yes, we all would feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. That you would, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who, could, who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so today, as we look at Mark, this, this is really, a, this picture from the, the story of Narnia is about Aslan is really what we're going to be considering about Jesus. Jesus is powerful, he's dangerous, he's, and yet he's caring and loving. That is striking to us. He is dangerous, and yet he is good. And so as we consider this about Jesus, as we're going to look how this unfolds before us in this text, the reality is this is something that we really need to take to heart because we actually misunderstand Jesus very often in our lives. And so as we lean into this story and look at this text today, we're really answering the question, who is this man? Who is this man? And so as we begin to answer this question, let's lean into some misconceptions first. So this, if you're an outline, there's going to be two parts to this misconceptions part. And the first point is, let's consider some irreligious misconceptions about Jesus. Because there are a lot of misconceptions about Jesus out there, and here are just three misconceptions about Jesus that are often held by irreligious or skeptical people. So the first one is that Jesus is a mere man, but this isn't just an emphasis that Jesus is a mere man. It's really the idea that Jesus is solely a political revolutionary. And we see this out there for us in our culture in this world by, in a book entitled Zealot by Reza Aslan. And he argues simply that Jesus is a political revolutionary. And so that's not a new under, misunderstanding about Jesus you actually go back into the Gospels, you find a Jewish group called the Zealots. Even one of Jesus' 12 disciples is named Simon, the Zealot. See, this isn't a new idea whatsoever, but this is an idea that uh, Jesus came and was really teaching a, about a new kingdom that would overthrow Rome literally and physically in the Jewish life. And so that's not a new misunderstanding whatsoever because the zealots and some of the Pharisees and others in Jesus' day, they expected God's anointed ones, God's Messiah, to be God's warrior on earth who would restore Israel's might and strength in this physical world. But to do that, this so-called Messiah would actually literally overthrow Roman rule in Israel. That's nowhere near what happened in Jesus' life. 
Instead, Jesus would say, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, give unto God what is God's. When Peter uh, pulled out a sword to uh, fight off his attackers uh, who were coming to arrest Jesus, uh, Peter pulls out the sword and cuts off uh, uh, Malchus's ear. And Jesus says, put away the sword. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So Jesus is quite clearly not a zealot who's coming to overthrow Rome. It's, it's, this is a wrong misconception. So the second misconception is that Jesus um, is just a religious teacher, a guru. And like with this in mind, uh, Jesus, like we see this in our culture today because there's this idea where Jesus is out there teaching God his love, that we are called to love God with our entire being, where we're called to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is absolutely true. Jesus is teaching these things, but the idea is that that's it. But when we look at the gospel accounts of what Jesus is teaching, it's a lot more than that. And so this misconception says that Jesus is simply a mere teacher. Now, there's this writer, C.S. Lewis. He's also the author of the Chronicles of Narnia. So obviously, I like this guy. He's going to pop up again a third time today. But so he writes this book, Mere Christianity. And in his book, he makes this argument that you... That goes like this. He says, you cannot call Jesus a good teacher. He can't merely be good. Because some of the things that Jesus said are audacious. He claims to be God. He claims to be be the way, the truth, and the life. And so anyone who would come and claim that he is the living God is either crazy, he's either lunatic, he's trying to deceive you, so he's a liar, or it's true, where he's the Lord of your life. You can't simply call Jesus a good religious teacher. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or everything he's saying is true, and you also have to say he's the living God as well. So that's the second misconception, that Jesus is solely a religious teacher, a guru. And the third one, um, to, to continue with like uh, Lewis's L's, is the idea that Jesus is simply a legend. That he's, it's really a com- that Jesus is really a combination of like ideas, and this is very popular in our day. But to to really argue against this is is to look at the gospel accounts uh, that really share who Jesus is. And the reason why this idea of Jesus as a legend being um, powerful in people's minds and imaginations is that even as we read this text before us, you would say, you would think to yourself, this sounds like a fairy tale. Like, here's a man who stands up and says, hey, stop it to the wind and the seas, and it stops? That sounds like a fairy tale. But the point is, if we take the gospel seriously and we look at the gospels, the, the picture of Jesus is that he is the Lord over all things. But to argue very specifically against this account, that the idea that Jesus is a, really a legend, if we look at the Gospels for what they are, we can't see them as legends. So scholars, and so here's why. Scholars across the board, across the board, look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and they see them as unique. Because if you go back to the early early writings in the first and second and third century of, uh, of the first, second, third centuries of Rome, all the literature uh, that is quite different. 
they're quite different. If you even look at pagan myths that are clearly like legends in some ways, the, of, of grandiose stories about one uh, man or, or so, someone else, like the Gospels are very, very, very different. They're just different. And so scholars who spend their entire profession studying ancient literature come to these books and say these are, this is very different. And these scholars even continue to say that these Gospels are like modern-day biographies. And that's how we should think of them. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are like biographies. But just to really strike the difference between us, in the world of journalism, on, on some hand, you would have these stories out there that would be like clickbait. They're just trying to get your attention. But here are the Gospels. They're like the New, the New Yorker. They're for your serious consideration of thought. And so these Gospels are putting forward the life of Jesus Christ as a true historical story that we are meant to emulate in our own lives. And here's just a few examples uh, of how we know that's the case. Like even in this story before us, before us, there are details that are that Mark can only know from eyewitnesses who are there in Jesus' life. And this is a, a major point. The Gospels are, are built upon facts and eyewitness testimony. And so we see this in this text before us. Like it, this passage in Mark is very brief. It's like we know the story, we know things that happen, but at the same time, there are a lot of unnecessary details. So Mark tells us it's at the end of the, uh, end of the day. And not only at the end of the day, not only do Jesus and the, the 12 disciples get in the boats, there are other boats who are with them, and they're going across the sea. And as the storm comes upon them, where's Jesus? He's in the boat. Where in the boat? He's in the stern of the boat. Where is he on the stern of the boat? He's sitting on a cushion. He has fallen asleep. There are a lot of unnecessary details that really show us live detail. And if we were in this boat with Jesus in this story, we would actually remember all these things. We would probably forget whether it was a Wednesday or a Friday, but we would remember that our rabbi, the person whom we are following, is asleep in the stern, and we wake him up, and then he stands up and says, hey, peace be still. We would remember that and we were just like, oh my word, who's this guy? So my point is, is that this story is a picture of our, of true life. Uh, it's a true story of disciples who are following Jesus in their everyday lives. And so this just really fights and show, against this idea that Jesus is simply a legend, and you go through the, all the Gospels, there's so many different things about eyewitness testimony that comes up over and over and over again. And we, not just in the Gospels, but even throughout the, the entire New Testament where people's first names are known, where Paul says, hey, you might not believe me, so you can ask this guy or this guy or this guy or this guy. And that's really the picture that we have of all the Gospels, that, that these Gospels are direct eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is. And so all of these three things that are misconceptions of Jesus, Jesus is not merely a good teacher, a good religious teacher. He's not a, primarily a political revolutionary, and he's not at all a, a legend. Jesus is something else entirely. And so moving on uh, is into the next point. We need to really ask the question, so how did the disciples 
misunderstand Jesus. Because all those three misconceptions that I just gave to you are misconceptions that we see in our culture in our day about Jesus. But what are some religious misconceptions that people have about Jesus? And this is what we see exemplified by the disciples. And this is the second point, where we have religious misconceptions of Jesus. And so the disciples by now, they have been walking with Jesus for probably about a year at this time. They have seen Jesus do some incredible things. And, and if you've been with us, you, we have looked at these things as well. He has casted out demons. He has healed lepers. He has, he has healed uh, cripples and paralytics, uh, people who can't write or use, do anything with their hands. Jesus has healed people. And so these disciples have seen Jesus' power firsthand. They've seen his power over the physical world, over disease. He has, he, they have seen God's power Jesus' power over the spiritual realm. Jesus, they've seen a lot of, they've seen Jesus do a lot of great things. But they misunderstand him. They really only see Jesus as the authority for their lives. They see him as a good religious teacher who is the authority for their lives, more specifically. And this is something that we do in our everyday lives as well. We, and this is how. We often think that if we follow Jesus, then he's not going to take us into storms of life. That Jesus is not going to take us into difficult seasons in our life. And so we think to ourselves that if we're going to follow Jesus, then marriage is going to be easy. If we follow Jesus, then parenting is going to be easy. But the reality is that in marriage, like our, our, our marriage is really the biggest in, in place of our redemption. And our parenting, like parenting is, the, is another big place of redemption in our lives. Parenthood is a great joy, but it exposes the sin and our, the idolatry in our, in our lives as parents. And so if we think about it, we also think that if we pray hard enough, then he is going to change us. But we learn something from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul tells us that he had a thorn in the flesh. And we are told that he prayed to God three specific times saying, please remove this thorn from my side. And God doesn't. So Paul's life is a living demonstration. Paul's point is something that we see lived out right before us. Jesus does not promise an easy life. Jesus does not promise a life free of difficulty. If we follow Jesus, he's going to take us straight on into the storms of life. He's going to lead us into difficulty. Jesus, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he invites us to follow him into a life of transformation where we can be healed, where we can be rescued, and where we can be changed. But that only happens through depending on him in great difficulty. So the storms of life is the context for our transformation. And here, here's an example. It's a very personal example, and it's one that a friend, this is an example of a friend. A friend sent me a message this week. We've been um, talking about a lot of things over the, uh, the past few months, but he, he sends me a message, and he shares that 2018, as a whole year, was very hard for him. It was a really bad year. He wasn't in a good place in his life. He wasn't taking care of himself, and he sinned. And not only did he sin, he goes on to cover his sin up. And when he is confronted in his sin, he 
only told half-truths. And he also went on to hide it a bit more. And as a result, he actually lost his job. And he, other things happened as well. And over the past few months, he's been confessing. He's been realizing how he was covering up sin and more. And so he's been confessing this sin. He's actually pursuing reconciliation. He's pursuing um, relationships as well, even when he's the injured party. And when he wrote me this message, I got to a certain line and I paused with great tears in my eyes, actually, because he said that this, my wife and I are in, are in the best place we've been in several years. The point that I'm making here is that here's a friend who's in the great storm of life. It's a storm of life that is really brought on by his own doing. But even though, even, even in light of that, it is a, a powerful place of healing and redemption within his own life and in his own marriage as well. And he's learning a hard lesson. He's learning the lesson that God is after our transformation. See, God will change you in your life. That is a promise he gives to you. But the pace may be slow where God changes you slowly over time, where you humbly receive and listen to his word, where you respond to the spirit's conviction in your heart and confess your sins and more. Or... And not just or, but there are times in our life, and this is universal to every disciple of Jesus Christ. There are moments in our life when God is not content with just taking things slowly. God wants to see radical change and transformation in our lives quickly, so he takes us into the wilderness. He takes us head on to the storms. He takes us into what theologians have called the dark night of the soul. He does this. Because he loves us. He does this for our good, and he does this for his glory as well. He does this so that we would more accurately reflect his character and love to the world. And he, gives, he does this with a promise that he is always with us. And that's actually what we see in this text. Here are the disciples. They are literally in the storm, and Jesus is still with them. But they are very honored. They look at Jesus as a friend and they go to him. They wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're going to drown? Now, at this time, they don't expect Jesus really to do anything. They really expect Jesus to basically drown with them. That's what they are expecting Jesus to do. They're not expecting anything else. But so what goes on, what, the very next thing that happens is a complete surprise to them. Jesus wakes up. He stands up, he says to the, the, the sea, the, the translation that we're reading from says, peace be still. That's not really an accurate translation of the Greek. The Greek is literally like, shut up and be quiet. That's literally what Jesus, the power and the, the, the really the sense of the words that Jesus is speaking and that's exactly what happens. The wind stops. The sea stops. And the, again, is, this, isn't, this is going from, let's say, like, to just to draw the drastic change of what just occurred. It, it goes from like really hurricane winds to where the sea is as smooth as glass. It's that type of radical transformation that the, the, these disciples have just witnessed. And it's at that point they ask, who is this man? But if you look at how Mark describes the disciples, this is how this is how Mark tells tell, this is what Mark tells us about them in verse forty one, and they were filled with great fear 
and said to one another, who is this man? Who is this man? Because at this point, they are afraid. Why are they afraid? Well, the answer is that in this miracle, they learned something about Jesus that they never expected. They learned something about Jesus that they, have, they did not see coming whatsoever. And these are disciples who knew something about the entirety of Scripture that they had before them in the, in the, the, the Old Testament. See, what they just witnessed Jesus do is that they witnessed that he is the Lord of earth. He is the Lord of all creation. And, and they know that because they're very familiar with the Old Testament, and they are familiar with the writings like Psalm 65, verses 5 to 7, which goes like this. Speaking about God, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples. And right there, the psalmist is, is, is declaring how by God's strength, he established the mountains. By God, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves. See, in the entire Old Testament, God alone has power over creation. We see this in the stories of Job. We see this in the story of Moses. We see this in the story of Elijah and more. So when Jesus steps up and says, shut up and be quiet, and that happens when the seas and the winds truly stop, the disciples are freaking out. They thought Jesus was solely a religious teacher, one who was giving them incredible insights into Scripture. But the reality is they have been following a man who is the Lord of creation. They realize that this man in front of them is not just a man. They are freaking out. And so they, they get a glimpse. What they see at this moment is they're getting a glimpse of his divinity. And this is a lesson for us. They realize in that moment that they are in the presence of someone who is from another world. That they are in a presence of a, of a greater power. And so the practical point for us is that Jesus, that there is no real match. There is no real contest when it's Jesus versus the storm. There's no real contest when it's Jesus and the dark night of the soul or the wilderness. There's no contest. There's no competition. There's no struggle. Because all Jesus has to do is stand up and say, stop, be quiet. That's it. There is no competition because Jesus is greater. And here, I want to return to verse 41 again. Because that the disciples realize this. Because they have been afraid of the storm. They've been afraid of the storm. And now all of a sudden they realize that they've, they never should have been afraid of the storm. They should have been afraid of Jesus. And that's also why they're freaking out. They're freaking out. And they have this, what we should be calling the fear of God. And let's lean into this. I want to lean into this very specific question. Because the disciples' response is fear, and this raises the question, should we fear God? I want to think about the disciples' reaction. And if you know the disciple, if you know the scriptures well enough, you know there's a proverb. 
in the Old Testament that goes like this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so the answer to the question, should we fear God, is yes. Scripture throughout the Old Testament presents fear of God as a good thing, as something that every single child of God, every single one of us, as a follower of Jesus Christ, should cultivate in our lives. So fear of God is a very, very good thing that we need to cultivate in our lives, but it's often misunderstood. Because it's misunderstood because of that one word, fear. Fear is misunderstood because fear in a relationship like with a parent or a child or friends or family or in-laws, it typically manifests itself in very unhealthy ways. Like if, I'm in a, if, we're, if you're in a relationship and you're afraid of another person, here are some of the things that you may be thinking. You may be thinking to yourself, well, I feel like I'm always walking on eggshells around that person. I feel like I can't really say what I'm thinking because I never know how they're going to react. So in light of those thoughts that we have all experienced in our life, what then happens? We don't say what we're thinking, even if it's necessary or good. We don't say what we're thinking because we are afraid of the response. And if, 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 that, if you're thinking about that type of fear and applying it to God, here are some of the consequences. You are afraid of God. You're, you're really viewing God as someone who is actually always angry at you. He's not loving. But because you're thinking of, of, of God as someone who is always angry at you, you're never calling out to God in honesty, in prayer. You're never saying, God, help me. You're never, saying, you're never calling out to God in prayer with, in true honesty. You're never doing that. You're also thinking to yourself that, hey, if I, I sin, I'm, then God's going to punish me. These are types of, these are some of the things that you may, you, you're thinking about if you're thinking about the fear of God in, in, in this way. The reality is fear of God is nothing like that. It's nothing like that. The fear of God that Scripture tells us, that, pre- that, that Scripture presents us with, is a feeling of wonder. And this is how C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain, put it, that fear of God is really a sense of inadequacy to cope with the moment we are before a holy God. It's that feeling of inadequacy, but he would even go on to say that it's a feeling of inadequacy to cope even in this broken world. What C.S. Lewis is getting at there is that fear of God is dependence where we depend upon God even to go before God, where we depend upon God even to go about our everyday lives. But it's not just this idea of dependence. It's actually this this idea where we are drawn to God, where we are being pulled to God, and where we're being drawn to him. This is what fear of God is, and and it's... Theologians and and scripture uses all sorts of different words to describe fear of God. It could be with reverence, where we revere God. It could be when we are in awe of God, when our hearts are full of wonder. And that's actually exactly what's going on here in the disciples. They're looking at Jesus and their hearts are full of wonder. They're like, what did he just do? Their hearts are full of wonder. And they're wondering, who is this man who can tell the seas to stop? Who can tell the wind to just shut up and sit down? Who is this man? 
So when we think about fear of God, it has to do with all these things of wonder and awe and reverence and a sense of inadequacy where we cannot go before God on our own. Fear of God is all these things and more. And here's the real difference between the two, between our wrong understanding. Here's the difference between our misunderstanding of fear of God and true fear of God. In our misunderstanding of fear, which I gave to you, it's where we are actually afraid of the other person and, and because they, they don't like us. They don't love us. And so we're afraid of them. But the picture of fear of God is that God actually loves us, that God cares for us, and that he's going to rescue us. And so perhaps you're here today, you find yourself in the midst of a storm, and to you, I want to encourage you with this story and just simply say, look to Jesus, because Jesus is greater than your storm. Jesus is greater than whatever difficult season of life that you're in, whatever it may be, whether it's relationships or whether, whatever it's something at work, whatever it is in your own life or over some sin, Jesus is greater than all those things. So look to him. Or perhaps you're here today and you're really unsure about this whole Christianity thing. Perhaps you're, you're perhaps just the simple notion of following Jesus at this point scares you. But this is what I want to point out to you. I don't think it's the idea of following Jesus that scares you. Instead, the idea what scares you is the idea that you're going to be led into a difficult circumstance in your life. That you're going to be going, that if you follow Jesus Christ, he's going to take you straight on into the hurricane of life. But the promise that we have from this text is that he is with you, that he is with us in the storms of life, and that he is committed to loving us and caring for us even through the difficult stories, the, diff- the, the, the difficult seasons in our life. And so the point of this text is that Jesus is greater than all the, the, the greatest difficulties that we face in our life because he is truly God and he is the one whom we follow. Let's pray.